Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Matt Smith, Managing Director of WPB, a marketing and advertising firm located in London. Matt, hello. Hello there. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, Now, normally we'd get straight over to the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected your business? No surprises, COVID has affected uh, every business, uh, and we're no exception. Um, We have had to innovate, change what we're doing, um, and make sure that we remain relevant to our clients um, in terms of the solutions that we provide and the ideas that we give them and help, and, 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 and in terms of helping them to articulate what they need to say to, whether that's internally or externally, uh, what they say to the outside world. And do you believe that this is going to have a long-term effect on the business, or do you think that you'll be able to bounce back quite quickly when this is over? I think it is not linear. Um, I think companies are recovering on changing what they're doing at different rates. Some are more affected than others. Uh, So, for instance, the housing market took a particularly heavy hit, Um, but it's bouncing back at the moment. But then other other sectors have have kind of plowed on, um, and certainly global, international companies have have, uh, kept going. Um, so it's not a, although the slogan was we're all in this together. I think emotionally we probably were, but certainly in terms of the economics, we're not. It's uh, it's uh, people are recovering and and arguably some still still um, dealing with the ramifications of COVID. We should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question: What does the word leader mean to you? I think. Leadership is a really interesting concept, especially now that, you know, given COVID and and how that sort of uh, leading has had to change, I think, which I think it has. I think now um, people want leadership without a shadow of doubt, but I think it has to be based in empathy, um, which previously it didn't have to have such um, such a relationship. Um, I think as a smaller business, we've always had to have that because you know we've got four generations of you know age groups that were um, working in our business, so they all have very very different expectations anyway of how they want to be led. Um, and in a service industry, I think you know you have to you have to adopt a fairly granular approach. But I think this particular uh, um, episode. Uh, um, has has really meant that uh, you, it's very hard to lead people unless you um, understand how they feel and and you know can respond to that. And how would you uh, describe your day to day leadership style? I would like to think it's inclusive, but I mean this is a question for the people that I work with. Really, um, I think it would be yeah. I would hope it's inclusive. I try to make sure that as much of what we comes from you know comes from the team um, as it does uh, from me for instance or comes from outside actually um, I think taking soundings and it's, uh, you could call that research but uh, equally it's not it's having mentors of your own it's really important um, 
people who can, you know, reflect on the things you're doing with you and uh, and sort of offer some insight to the benefit of experience. Um, and I think that's part part of leadership is, um, in some respects, just passing on, you know, that experience and helping others to grow, to fill those, or not necessarily fill those those gaps, but certainly, you know, every every leader has has gaps in their portfolio. And, um, you know, the team around them should help fill those. Um, and, and that part of, part of being a leader is, is encouraging that. Now, when it comes to how you were encouraged when you were coming up in your career, did you have any role models who shaped the way that you lead today? Or um, were you more shaped by circumstance? No, definitely people. Uh, definitely thinkers. I mean, clearly there were, there were teachers. Uh, there were uh, a couple of university professors who really opened my mind to how you can approach subjects and, and thinking. And then once you're in the workplace, then it is about, you know, those people who can engage with you and give you opportunities. And I think also that, you know, some of that is a, a function of, you know, my my age group. Um, I sort of went into the workplace in the early, just after the uh, recession in the early 90s. So there was a boom, you know, I, was, I joined at the right time, I suppose. And so opportunities were there. And um, I think, yeah, that's, there are certain individuals, but it's, it's less the events and, and certainly the way that the people I admire, admire and respect have dealt with them or helped me deal with things that I remember. Do you have any people that you mentor yourself? Um. Indirectly, yes. Um, I don't do it as a as a sort of um, function, but because of the nature of our business, I think um, you know I've got enough on my plate uh, rather than just uh, you know rather than sort of adding mentoring, you know, adding commitments that I wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, fulfil. But uh, certainly, as part of being a leader, I think mentoring is a really important part of that. Um, and I think also it, it, there's 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 mentoring, but there's also coaching. Uh, the two things being very different. I mean, coaching is about getting people to realise themselves what they need to do um, and what they want to do, uh, let alone what they need to do. Uh, mentoring is about is more about the imparting of, of you know experience um, to to people. So I think, um, yeah, there, there, there is definitely that is wrapped up in the leadership. And I think if you're going to have be an empathetic empathetic leader, then uh, those activities are really really important. Now, of course, uh, leadership uh, is usually faced with the strongest challenge uh, when it comes to the resolution of conflict. Do you have a specific formula of how you resolve conflict within your own organization? I think if conflict is an interesting notion because I think there are times when, depending on the nature of the conflict, if, if the conflict is about an idea, and, and you know, in creative industries, you can imagine, you know, there, there's, there are opinions flying around all the time about how a thing should be executed or what tone is struck. Then I think that the discursive nature of of that, the collaborative nature of of, uh, of that conflict, can be quite helpful. Actually, I think in creative uh, pursuits generally. Um, and I think if COVID has taught us anything um, in in my line of work, it's that the collaborative element is the bit that most people are missing um, because you can do everything at home but it is a doing it's not a thinking 
the energy and the collaboration and all those sort of things. So um, I think there's there's that element of conflict. I mean, and but then there's also the the, the conflict, which is you know the, the legal stuff, isn't there? You know, which which comes from time to time, or there's conflict in other, um, you know, in in uh, sort of um, human resources terms, where uh, where people may may have you know had a disagreement. Um, I don't think it's about there isn't a one size fits all. You've got to go back to this granular thing that I was saying earlier, which is like you have to understand the individuals involved understand what's important to them, why they're behaving the way they are, and then actually address those things rather than, uh, you know, have a, have a particular formula that, that, um, that works for, for all situations, because I'm, I'm not convinced that there is one. Now, Matt, unfortunately, our time together is beginning to wane. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for WPB? Well, we recently become became part of a broader group, so I'm now a director of WHJE, which is a, a bigger ad, um, agency uh, with um, other companies in its group. Um, I think in terms of the next 12 to 18 months, we need to um, understand not only just what we do well and how we do it for our clients in the future um, in the city, but we need to also understand how that might work for our employees. We need to really understand what the ramifications of working, uh, of remote working will be for us, how much of that we do, um, how much of that our clients want to do. Um, so I think it will be a really big learning uh, process for, for everybody. I mean, I, you know, we'll be, we're no exception here. Um, in terms of... Uh, Striking the right balance between the collaborative, the need to be with people and the need to communicate and, and to talk and to get those ideas out there, but also the need to, you know, protect um, you know, our, our welfare um, uh, because if there are more spikes, then um, clearly, we're, you know, we're not going to be office-based in the way that we were in the past. Um, so whatever that looks like, I think that will be one of the, driving dynamics of of how we decide to how we work going forward well i'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today matt unfortunately we are out of time uh but i'd love to have you back on when things get back to normal but for the meantime matt thank you thank you my pleasure that was matt smith managing director of wpb and now if you haven't heard it before it's jonathan white's exclusive interview with sir andrew strauss Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname, it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt, you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as Hold a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become avid cricket fans I know of some it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be yeah it was an incredible day wasn't it I mean I think in our vision like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary yeah. thing well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.